It's an act which is as synonymous with America and the American spirit as anything else can be. Angry about taxes, a group of Bostonians got together in 1773 and pushed hundreds of boxes of tea into the ocean. That act has since been summoned to describe all kinds of political activity, from the civil disobedience protests of Mahatma Gandhi, to opposition against Richard Nixon and large oil companies, to a libertarian wing of the Republican Party, which existed around the time of the Great Recession. What started the Boston Tea Party in the first place was the same thing that started the Pine Tree Riot and many other milestone moments in the American Revolution. They were fueled by resentment of British involvement in colonial affairs. Frustrated at not having a say in the way they were governed, they wanted out of the British Empire once and for all. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 46, The Pine Tree Riot and the Boston Tea Party. This episode is part of a series on world revolutions, and this mini-series is specifically about the American Revolution. All right, Race, I've got a getting-to-know-you question. Let's hear it. Do you ever feel like if you could have chosen which time period to be born into, you would choose a different time period? Okay. I don't know if people are going to quit believing the stuff that we say, but as soon as you said, do you ever feel, <laughs> I, I, I wish I would have stopped you and said that I should have been born in a different decade. Ah! That's the reason I knew you were going to ask me that question. Um, <laughs> We're finishing each other's sentences. Exactly. It's happened many a time on the podcast. <laughs> um, hmm. No, as far as the answer, I'll have to think about that. I don't, I don't think I feel any special affinity to any other time. Um, I, think I'm, I think I'm right where I'm supposed to be. I know that I, I've... feel differently or like I seriously feel like I should have been born this other time. Um, but I, I like I like the I like where I land. I like that I've lived in the 1900s. I think that's exciting. Um, only for a little while, but I gotta live in the 1900s. Um, it's cool. I think it's cool to me how like that will soon become a novelty. Like when I read about yeah. my, my great grandparents, um, which I've been doing a bunch recently. They were born in 1880. Like my great grandma was born in 1889. It's like, ooh, that's cool. She's born wow. in the 1800s. And it's like, yeah. ooh, that's what they're going to say about me. Like, he was born <laughs> in 1990, you know, almost exactly 100 years after these great-grandparents. And so um, I, I, I like where I'm at. I don't think I'd want to be anywhere else. I mean, you go too far back and you run out of, um, you know, penicillin and good toilet paper. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I'll stick right where I'm at. I, lo I loved the late 90s as, a, as just a general experience. So what about you? That, I think that's a great answer, um, and I feel the same way about having been born in the 1990s. Do you have, though, like a favorite time period in general? Like you like reading about it, or you like literature from that time period, or I don't yeah. know. I mean, the mid-century period was pretty cool. Like we had this Ascendant America, um, the space program. So, like, I think it would have been cool to be in high school in, like, 1959. Um, mm. I think that was a cool time in some ways um, for certain groups of people. <laughs> but it was, it was an interesting period in American um, history. Like, like I said, the space program was just on its kind of getting its feet under it. And um, I don't know. I, I, I find that period interesting. Again, I don't know how much I would have loved to live then because, you know, uh, there was a lot of terrible things to be said about that time, but um, yeah, mid-century America is, is pretty cool. I think that there's some some neat stuff there. And that checks out with Cormac McCarthy, right? Isn't that his his time period, or was he later than that? He so he's still alive, but he does write a, of about kind of the inter or the the post-war period. Yeah, and that's another interesting thing about it is America was kind of becoming itself or becoming its modern iteration. Like that was quite a World War II for the United States mm. was really a um, yeah. 
yeah, kind of this weird baptism by fire. We'd, we'd been around, we'd got our feet underneath us, but then World War II came and we just exploded both in population mm. with, with the baby boomers, with, you know, in industry and wealth. And so it was an interesting time. Very neat. My answer, like I said, I would probably choose to be born in 1990. Honestly, <laughs> I think it was a great, great time to be born. But I love my, I think my favorite time period to read about is turn of the century. So 1890s, early 1900s, we're talking Henry James, Edith Wharton, clothing is fantastic, furniture, paintings are fantastic. It's all just beautiful. I love, love looking at images from that era and also reading the literature from that time period. Yeah. Yeah, you could, you could go back and hang out with my great grandma as a teenager yeah right yeah um super cool yeah but i mean i will say about the 90s we had the most i think the most backstreet boys per decade that i am aware of <laughs> in the 90s. so that it has that going for it most backstreet boys like as in the most like, boy bands no i'm just saying in 1970 there was very little backstreet there boys were no backstreet boys yeah in oh yeah um, okay that makes sense yeah definitely 90s had the advantage there like if you have a bar graph of backstreet boys activity <laughs> over for time all of, for all of eternity the 90s are really kind of up there <laughs> and the 2000s very true all right we're wrapping up today our discussion of the american revolution by looking at two events in particular, first the Pine Tree Riot and second the Boston Tea Party, both extremely pivotal events in the American Revolution and both, I think, extremely silly events in a certain way. I, I can't read about this stuff or think about it without just kind of giggling sometimes, but we'll get into all of the, the ramifications of that as we go forward. To start off, though, I wanted to give some political context for both of these events. Uh, we have talked about a lot of this context already in our, our past episodes, but it's good to review kind of the environment that the events are being born out of. So we talked earlier in the Navigation Acts episode about Oliver Cromwell having taken the throne, as it were, after the execution of Charles I. Charles I was executed. Oliver Cromwell is kind of instated as this like, you know, temporary non-king who's kind of ruling stuff. And then after Oliver Cromwell dies, the throne is restored to Charles II. And Charles II, two years after Metacomet's war, which we talked about last episode, Charles II tries to centralize government in the colonies. And he says, we need to have, you know, some kind of governing body that's coming from England, but's making decisions in the colonies. This mm. was ferociously unpopular, you can imagine. Um, and it was met with opposition. And in a response, the crown nullified the charters of the colonies that were in the area. Charles II was succeeded by his son, James II. And James continues this idea of you know, having dominion in the colonies. He creates what's known as the Dominion of New England in 1686. Again, extremely unpopular. This triggers lots of bitter resentment among the colonists. But fortunately for the colonists, James ends up abdicating the throne soon after he does the Dominion of New England. And by the way, this is a little bit of a teaser trailer at this point for when we talk about the English Revolution, mm -hmm. because that will be all about James abdicating the throne. So James is off the throne. Then there's an uprising in New England, and they successfully overthrow the Dominion of New England government in 1689. Successful because they're not really getting any opposition from England at this point, because James II isn't on the throne anymore. After that, there were a bunch of kings and queens who come in order. There's William and Mary, there's Queen Anne, George I, George II, and most of them basically left the colonies alone. Actually, I clicked on all of their Wikipedia pages and almost found no references to the American colonies at all. 
which I, mm-hmm. I thought was kind of surprising because, you know, they still, they were on the throne, you know, so you think they would have done something, but there wasn't really much about um, their relationship with the colonies because it doesn't seem like they were really involved and they didn't try to restore the dominion of New England that James II had created. And they didn't really do much other than try to pass a couple taxes here and there. I wonder if the distance that we've discussed contributes to that, if they're just like, look, people, the previous monarchs who got involved over there got super messy, out of sight, out of mind, we'll pass some taxes. Other than that, we'll let the colonists in in America do what they want to do. It's got to be that, right? Yeah. You you know, yeah, that that would be an easy position to take. It's just, it's a headache and it's so far away, I don't have to think about it. And they're going through their own revolution at this point. So they're you know, we've got our own fish to fry. There were other things that contributed to colonial resentment of the English government. We've already talked about, you know, the Navigation Acts. We've talked about the fact that they weren't represented in Parliament. Another important one, though, is the wars that happened on colonial land, namely the French and Indian War, which I don't know very much about. I don't know if you do. I'm not an expert on the French and Indian War. Um, not a ton, except for that in spirit, in some ways, it's a little bit like Metacomet's War that we discussed previously, in that um, you've got colonists coming, and um, in this case, as it says, they're French um, colonists, and kind of a mishmash and sometimes surprising alliances between like, oh, well, um, you know, these tribes are allying with these white people and these tribes are allying Mm -hmm. with these white people and um yeah i don't i don't know a ton about it other than that that it was it's kind of a good example of um of what we've been talking about just there's all of these kind of pressures on this little chunk of land and so there's these native people who have their you know interests that they're trying to look out for you know a la meta comet and then you've got all of these colonists who are coming in and trying to you know beat everybody else to the punch to get the resources and stuff and so it was just kind of a a strange um again like we discussed last time strange bedfellows and people just basically fighting over who got here first who gets to keep what and who's you know where do we draw the lines um but with some french people which always makes things more exciting (laughs) there's a lot of that for sure i was interested to see that the french and indian war is now considered by historians really not to be a separate war at all, but just to Mm. be a theater of a specific war that was already happening between England and France and Europe, which is called the Seven Years' War. Yeah. Um, And so the French and Indian War was like, that happened here instead of over there. Just a different location. That's interesting, Mm -hmm. an interesting way. Um, The French and Indian War is also where... um, George Washington kind of got his first combat experience and um, was actually not a very good field commander during the French and Indian War, but that's where he got sort of, sort of cut his teeth and became a public figure in the colonies as well. Oh, yeah. Well, you can also imagine how that would as well, right? If England has beef with France that they're trying to figure out and they're doing it on American soil (laughs) with without any say in the matter you know that's kind of you know you can understand that some people would be a little put out by that there was a particular incident when the british captured a forest or excuse me captured a fortress called louisburg and took it for a while and then after some period of time they gave it back to the french and the americans were like are you kidding me like we died for this fortress and now you're just going to give it back to the enemy that was kind of upsetting we come now, though, to the famous villain of the story, King George III, who takes over the crown in the 1760s after George II dies. He's got to be like the evil villain of American history, right? Especially when we take a look at the Hamilton musical and has, how he's portrayed in that, as well as the text of the Declaration of Independence, which full-on calls him a tyrant. Yeah. Um, famous bad guy. I have to say, in my opinion, not to editorialize, but reading the text of the Wikipedia article for King George III, there doesn't really seem anything wrong about him. There doesn't seem to be anything that he did that was like 
especially egregious. I think the worst thing that you could say about King George III is that he was mentally ill at the end of his life. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't really his fault, you know? It wasn't yeah. his fault. Yeah, I think, um, I think he was, like you said, something you could say about him, he really wasn't doing anything that previous monarchs hadn't done in that he was continuing to tax the colonies, continuing to treat them like, you know, ATMs, continuing yeah. to treat them with less, the the white colonists there, with less respect than like an Englishman in, in any other part of the world, or at least back home. And, um, but yeah, he, it's not like he stepped in and was like, I'm going to start doing mean things to you. It's like, oh, this has been going on a long time. He was just the guy in charge when it came to a head, basically. Right, right. And, you know, he was... Um... He was incapacitated at the end of his life. He had to have a a regent set aside who could govern in his place because he was mentally ill. Mm -hmm. But that didn't happen until well after the war was over. During the war, he was, you know, he was just the figurehead. The other thing that's important to keep in mind here is that King George III, by this point, is in the charge of a constitutional monarchy, which means he's got parliament and a prime minister who are doing a lot of the governing. Yeah, King at this point is becoming more and more of a figurehead, less and less of somebody making decisions. He did make decisions more than I think like Queen Elizabeth II would be able to make decisions today. But he had a prime minister, you know, Lord North is the one who's signing off on a lot of things. And I think that that kind of plays out in the fact that what the... um what the colonies in a lot of cases were angry about were we're Englishmen and we wanted to be treated as Englishmen under the law. If you want to tax us, give us a representative in that, in, you know, in the government, as opposed to if you go back 500 years, the things that peasants were complaining about the King was Mm -hmm. like, he literally rides into our villages and kills people (laughs) and takes whatever he wants. And then fast forward, like I said, to the 1770s. And it's like, we don't think this structure of representation is adequate for our, you know, for the financial (laughs) uh for the financial benefit we're providing to the commonwealth so like it it's a different different stakes and i think you're right it's because yeah we've the government has progressed and there's like you said it's a constitutional situation now um reminds me a little bit of the um so like the original star wars trilogy you're watching those and it's it's good versus evil and it's so inspiring and wonderful and just captured my imagination and then as we said, being born in 1990, then it was like, there's new Star Wars coming out. And I got there and they were like, trade disputes. <laughs> the <I'm>... Chancellor <laughs> and the Trade Federation. And I couldn't tell you the conflict of that movie, unfortunately. A vote of no confidence. A vote of no confidence. And I mean, the stakes had just, so same with Star Wars, the stakes had kind of changed in that sense. They wanted, you know, it's like, hey, we've got a, we've got a representative system, and we've got all this stuff, and we just want to be treated differently. And so, in that sense, you're, what you're saying about this kind of being silly is, it's like, yeah, he wasn't, by and large, just you know, raping and pillaging like might have happened hundreds of years before. It was more, you know, more of a of a political, um, you know, unpleasantness than more than anything else. Yeah, I wonder how the uh common folk on may have felt if king george the third was their king instead of king john they yeah. might have been like this guy's great this is awesome <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so even though king george the third you know maybe he wasn't the villain that we make him out to be he nevertheless took the blame for everything that was happening and he served as a clear figurehead to uh, for everything that's happening at this point So now in our story, we're in 1772 and specifically we're in New Hampshire. Um, 1772 would be two years after the Boston massacre, um, which we've referred to earlier was when some um, red coat soldiers fired on um, protesters, sons of liberties, rabble rouser types um, in Boston, killing them. That was, uh, did not go over well, but did not um, spark all out war either, but it was um, kind of an early, bloodshed in the war. 
So it's two years after that, but we're still three-ish years away from um, the actual beginning of the revolution. So times are tense. We've had one of the biggest kind of inflection points of the Boston Massacre, but um, we're still still keeping the peace. So we're in New Hampshire, which if you've ever been to New Hampshire, it's a beautiful place and it's um, kind of a you've wooded... Been... I have been to New Hampshire, yeah. Oh, I'm jealous. I want to go. Um, I've only been very briefly, but it's um, it's uh, all of kind of the East Coast in some ways that, you know, like the upper um, from Virginia North blends in my mind because it's all very flat and it's all very beautiful. Mm, yeah. And it's lots and lots of um, trees, beautiful um, hardwood trees out West. It's a lot more mountainous and the beautiful trees that we have are um, there are very few hardwood trees out here. So it all sort of looks the same to me, I'm sure um new hampshireites would rent their clothing to hear that but beautiful place and um and the trees are are significant as you know the name pine tree riot might imply and i think this is so fascinating because these are the kind of things that you don't think about but the trees in new hampshire were extremely important to the british um colonial system and to the to the um to the crown in general because if you're going to build a big old ship and um, in the 1700s, England loved few things more than a big old ship. You need a lot of wood. And you can make the body of a ship out of multiple kinds of wood. And there's different, you know, theories as to what kind of wood you want for which kind of boat and et cetera, and et cetera. But one thing that is indisputable is that for the mast, meaning the big tall thing in the middle that the main sails are attached to, there's usually like a, a main center mass and then a slightly smaller one, depending on the size of the boat. Um, but you need a big tree that is tall and of basically uniform circumference. You need a telephone pole, essentially. And um, you can't get that from a maple tree. You can't get that from an oak tree or an ash or a birch. And so pine trees are actually excellent for this because if you can picture a great big tall pine tree, um, it's just a big central trunk with um, very small, you know, branches coming off of it, Christmas tree style. And so if you want a great big, tall, strong center pole, you need pine trees. Um, there's a whole history of deforestation and the forestry habits in um, England and, and Europe surrounding like historical forestry, which I fell into that Wikipedia hole and it was a lot of fun. So go give that a read. For instance, Ireland today, has about 10% of its, of, of its um, historical forest area, only a 10th. And so those- And whoever thinks of Ireland as being wooded. Exactly, it's, and it hasn't been for some time, like back to, you know, back when we're, the episodes we did like early white, like let's just say the white ship disaster. If you'd gone to Ireland, there still wouldn't have been any trees. Like they've been gone for a while. Oh, they've been and, even before that. Okay. Even, and not all of them. I mean, there were a lot more than there are now. <clears throat> but these areas have experienced a great deal of deforestation. And that just comes from there being civilizations there for a long time. People wanting to clear land for um, agriculture purposes and building stuff, building ships, building houses, building all sorts of things. And so the mast specifically, like I've said, is, is a really central part and it's the hardest piece of lumber to acquire in most cases. Now, England um, needed this. They had extensive Navy needs. Um, they had an expanding empire. So they obviously had their colonies here in the United States, um, what is now the United States that they had to be sending boats over carrying people carrying tea and all sorts of stuff. Um, and they had to be able to transport their troops all over the world. And they were doing things, you know, in, um, in New Guinea and they were doing things in the, in the Bahamas and, you know, in Guyana and all sorts of places around this time. And, and in the past hundred years, they'd been using wood to build this stuff. And so um, they were competing with the Spanish and Portuguese and Dutch fleets and so in, in a sense, there's kind of like a colonial industrial complex in the sense that, well, we need lots of boats to go out and keep conquering these colonies and to keep the colonies that we have in check. Um, but the best place to get the lumber is from these colonies. And so they keep expanding their colonies to be able to expand their colonies. And so, you know, like Eisenhower said, there's a 
for them a colonial industrial complex that's like this um ouroboros self you know mm. eating snake and so the best at the time considered some of the best lumber in the world for this specifically was the white pine that grows um grew and grows in new hampshire so it was a specific type of pine tree that um you know had all these characteristics that they like it was very strong and it was very straight and it was exactly what they wanted um to the extent that in 1605 at least as far back as 1605 um English explorers and sea captains and stuff were taking seeds of the white pine back to Europe and trying to plant them in order to grow groves of them so that they could have their own trees, you know, in um, where they're building the ships instead of hauling them back, cutting them down and hauling them back. Um, I didn't, I wasn't able to find how successful that was. I don't think it was terribly successful. Um, otherwise, you know, if that had been succeeding in 1605, they would have had less need for the trees in New Hampshire. Um, but yeah, in 1605, a man named um, George Weymouth was um, one of the first to bring back seeds to try and grow them. And so for that reason, in Europe, sometimes these trees are known as Weymouth pines to this day because he was trying to grow them. Um, anyway, so that's where this there's um, in the economics of this, that's where the demand for these trees comes from. We really need them. They're central to building the great big ships that, that make us very, very happy. And so it gets us into um, this sort of run on pine trees. And so there's a whole history of different laws and decrees that were passed and repealed and altered and stuff. But um, suffice it to say that in the colonies, um, large pine trees were in demand and that they were being seized um, one way or another by the crown. And so, for instance, in New Hampshire, or, um, in, um, around this time, all suitable pines um, of a certain size were being seized for the Royal Navy. At one point, it was 24 inches, but in the 1720s, it was um, in circumference or um, diameter is what I'm saying. So a tree that's, you know, two feet wide, um, that was the kind of the cutoff. So, okay, you can keep your trees until they get to 24 inches, and then we take them and they go to... England to build um, big, big ships. And then that was actually lowered to just 12 inches in the 1720s. So even more trees were, um, you know, falling under the, the royal saw and being taken back to, um, to the shipbuilders. And then you get characters like, um, sort of like a tax collector, but they were called surveyors of the king's woods. Um, and the logic being, these woods of New Hampshire are the king's because everything under the, you know, the king's dominion belongs to him. And so I am here to survey the king's woods and determine which one of these trees need to go back. And the trees that were considered of the um, appropriate size and that, you know, so they no longer belong to the, to the colony or no longer are going to be grown here. We're going to cut it down and send it back. They were marked with, um, a kind of a symbol that is, I, I didn't know about this, but is, is even to this day used as a, a token of something that belongs to the crown. And it's the symbol of the broad arrow. So it's kind of like a, just a very basic arrowhead shape, a broad arrowhead shape. And um, there's a whole wiki page about that. It's very interesting. And to this day, like mili British military, like you'll see it on like Jeeps and stuff. It's got this arrowhead symbol. I think it's mostly symbolic today. It doesn't really need to be marked there, but it's a symbol of like, this belongs to the king, which is kind of cool. So you've got these surveyors of the king's woods walking around New Hampshire, marking trees with this broad arrow symbol saying, this is going to get cut down, goes back to, um, to England. And the appetite for these trees was just voracious. Um, so in, we're talking, um, so in 1772, John Sherman was the deputy surveyor. So he's a crown figure. I mean, everybody was a crown figure at that time, but he was loyal to the crown and he was in charge of basically rooting out people who were breaking this law. So he ordered a search of the sawmills in the area, basically to see who is cutting down trees that should belong to the king. So who's got their, their you know, hand in the cookie jar, so to speak. And several um, owners of different sawmills around were found out. They had trees um, that they were harvesting that, um, according to them, you know, um, according to the crown, belonged to the crown. You can't have these trees. These are the king's trees. 
And the people that were arrested, the different owners and whatnot, um, actually fought it in court. They said, well, we're going to get an attorney and we want to challenge this. Um, and there was a settlement decided on that the, um, that the owners of the sawmills could pay so that they could, you know, apologize for having taken the king's precious, precious trees. But several um, people refused to pay. So specifically the Weir Mill owners, um, owners of the, the Weir Mill, said, we're not going to do that. So that led to more, um, more arrests. So we arrested you, you, we caught you with your hand in the cookie jar, and you need to pay up. And they said, not only are we not sorry we cut down the trees, we're also not going to pay for this. So Benjamin Whiting, who was sheriff of um, Hillsborough County in New Hampshire, and his deputy were sent to this town of South Ware with a warrant to arrest the mill leaders, bring them in, naughty, naughty boys for stealing the king's trees. Um, um, one of the mill owners was arrested. He was released and was being told, yeah, you can, you know, you're going to be able to bail out. And the sheriff and his deputy who had gone down there to do the king's business were like, great job. Well done. We're going to spend the night um, in uh, the inn of a man named Aaron Quimby. And the inn was called the Pine Tree Tavern. Now, if I were writing, if I were reading a screenplay for this, I would say that's a little too on the nose. You need to change that, that they <laughs> stayed at the Pine Tree Tavern the night that this all happened. But it's true. That's what happened. Um, they should have known that something bad was going to happen the night that they checked into the Pine Tree Tavern. But that night after, you know, they'd come to town and kind of laid down the law in, in the way that they wanted to. Um, townspeople gathered. They went into the, the, um, the hotel and they, um, they decided to teach a lesson. So they went and found the sheriff and um, there was violence is basically what we can put it. You can go read about it, but basically they, they um, burst in on, on Whiting, who again was the um, sheriff of Pillsbury County. They had their faces um, blackened, you know, so that nobody could tell who they were, the, the ski mask of the day. And they beat him with branch switches, which again is a little on the nose. Um, and they, um, they outnumbered this guy and really just did a number on him and several other authority figures were, um, were attacked. Um, tragically the, um, the horses of the, of these men were also like, um, attacked and, and tortured, which is really sad. Um, and so this was a, a big pushback. It was again, kind of one of the, or not the first, but a significant time that the colonists, these people who were feeling oppressed and feeling on the short end of this economic stick, um, pushed back and drew some some blood, as it were. And so this was a big deal, the fact that, you know, representatives of the crown, people who were there on official business, got just dragged into the street by these, you know, common colonists and really got, um, got the got the tar kicked out of them. So that was the Pine Tree Riot. Um, like I said, a few years before the war, but really a good encapsulation of a lot of the tensions that were going on. Tyler, you and I were remarking before this, these things kind of repeat, and we'll, we're going to talk about the Boston Tea Party in a moment, but you have these sort of similar con conflicts, similar economic factors, similar angers and bad blood, and so um, kind of identical or at least similar things keep popping up where people are really feeling the squeeze in some way and they just there's just they can't be contained anymore and so these colonists lash out about about tea or about you know stamp acts and taxes on printed goods or about pine trees because they really just felt like they were getting choked out of of the economy or or whatever it was and so um that's how the northern pine that was needed for the center mass of all these British ships caused a bunch of New Hampshire people to just kind of go crazy on, on the sheriff. So one year after the Pine Tree Riot and like 100 miles southeast of New Hampshire, we have the Boston Tea Party, which was provoked by the Tea Act passed in 1773 by King George III and Lord North's Parliament. The Tea Act itself 
is so complicated. I I don't know about you. I find these acts to be very convoluted, and like the Townsend Act, the Stamp Act, the Tea Act, all of it is kind of like when we talked about Magna Carta, how yeah. they have these little nitty gritty details that mean so little to us now. You know, like who can use the king's forests and. 12th century England you know I, I don't know <laughs> or that's, like that's, that's that kind exactly of thing right I mean it's important in a certain context now because of what it caused but it's the equivalent of somebody at a party now who's like oh I can tell you everything about like you know Obama's first budget on, in his first term oh yeah and it's like, yeah that is really important and I'm glad there's people who understand it but like I don't you know the nitty gritty of like, well, this version of the infrastructure bill versus the next one. It's like most people don't really keep up with that. And so we're talking about, so right now we're talking about tea and it's like, well, this goes back to at the very least, like the 1720s where they're starting to regulate tea in a certain way. And so there's like 70 or 50 years of tea regulation that, <laughs> yeah. If you're the in, nuclear if you're into it, God anyone who would like to read those yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are a few interesting um takeaway statements we can make about the tea act though and one of those is that it caused a monopoly to be created at the time giving basically all power of tea exporting to the east india company right yeah yeah so i mean the east india company which could be an, and maybe should be an episode on its own talking about the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company, but it was this huge, I mean, it was essentially like a world power, this <laughs> shipping uh, um, company, which again speaks to the power of these boats and why you needed boats because you had to get stuff around the world. It's, you know, the same reason Amazon is a big deal now. It's like anyone who can move the stuff and get the things to the people who need the things is has a bunch of sway and is going to make a bunch of money. Um, but yeah, essentially the East India Company, there was an ex, there was a, an excess amount of tea and the way that they um, made it work was the crown subsidized and didn't charge and, you know, gave discounts and all this stuff to the East India Company. Um, allowed, so the Tea Act and all that stuff allowed the East India Company to sell even more cheaply than it, than it as prices were going down, it could sell even cheaper. And so they were undercutting smugglers in the colonies, um, but also colonial tea importers. So people in the colonies were like, well, what if we just import our own tea? We could import our own tea from India and then we can have our tea and I'll start my own business because this is America and bootstraps and whatnot. And then the crown was like, nope, we're going to send all these ships over with super cheap tea so that everyone is just forced to buy our tea um, because we're creating this like artificially low price from this, you know, uncompetable source of the British company. So yeah, it was a government backed monopoly race to the bottom for the lowest prices that was just, you know, bankrupting anyone who wanted to do business against the East India company. So it was government had its thumb on the scale, um, which, you know, the upside is tea was really cheap, but the downside is if you were a tea importer, then you're completely hosed <laughs> because the government's, mm. you know, hooking up the East India company in a way that you simply can't compete with. And that leads into another important soundbite that we can pull out of what happened here, which is surprising. And it's that the price of tea ultimately went down as a result of the Tea Act. Yeah. And that's surprising because when we think of the Tea Act and the British and the Boston Tea Party, we assume that it was, oh, I don't want to pay these outrageous prices. <laughs> that really wasn't it at all, actually. The price of tea went down. What they were upset about, you know, we can infer is not really the price of tea, but, you know, yeah. the colonists couldn't use their words. They, they couldn't express what they were mad about. <laughs> oh, come on. They, they tried. <laughs> they basically did use their words. They wrote a lot of documents. So are, many, so many very... broadsides, which were like those, you know, I'm going to publish this pamphlet that's, all my fancy ideas and it's going to be plastered on all of the taverns and stuff. Common and yeah. sense, right? Exactly. Yeah. Common sense. Yeah. So the tea act comes out in the spring of 1773. 
and it declares that 5,000 chests of tea are going to be sent to the American colonies and an import tax of 225,000 pounds in today's money would be paid to Great Britain for the shipment. There are three tea ships that end up coming over in the winter of 1773. We're talking November and December. Very cold time in Boston. Mm. And one of the ships gets there first. Dartmouth gets there first. And when Dartmouth arrives, Samuel Adams calls for a meeting to be held about what to do about this tea issue. Thousands of people show up. So many people come that they actually have to change the venue from little small meeting house to huge thousands of people meeting house. And in the meeting, they decide what they're going to do is send the ship captain, captain of the Dartmouth, back to England without paying the import tax. So England is not going to collect on these 225,000 pounds that they were expecting. And I'll, I'll note, Tyler, that this had happened already in other colonies. Three other colonies had stopped the tea from like being unloaded. So the ship showed up and they're like, we don't want any of this, you know, any of your of your tomfoolery with this tea. And so other colonies had rejected. I don't know if it was mm. these specific ships or similar ships and had done this basic thing like, nope, you're not stopping here. Go go somewhere else. Go back to England. And so this was this had already been done in other places. It makes sense. And it makes sense as to why this didn't actually work out in Massachusetts. But the next two ships that came over, the Eleanor and the Beaver, they're on their way. And a couple weeks later, Samuel Adams calls another meeting. They call this meeting because they hear word that the governor is not going to allow Dartmouth to leave unless he pays the import tax. Dartmouth the ship. So that makes sense, if, given that the other colonies were able to send somebody back. But Massachusetts governor in particular is now getting in the way of that. So I have this meeting. And after the meeting, people are leaving. 30 to 130, anywhere between those two numbers, men dress in the costume of Native American Mohawks. They're wearing, I think, masks and paint and, you know, all kinds of elaborate costuming. They did this because obviously they had to be masked. It was important that they hide their faces to do a criminal activity. But specifically, the decision to dress as Mohawks was seen as a statement about belonging to America and the North American continent rather than to Great Britain. Yeah. Dressed as Mohawks, they go to Boston Harbor, they board the ships that are there, and they push all 342 chests of tea into the water. This is 92,000 pounds, physical tons, of tea worth $1.7 million in today's money. And they just push it into the water. There it goes. And then I guess the Boston Harbor smells like tea for the next couple of months. I mean, who knows <laughs> what that did to the water around it or if it dyed it brown or something. I don't know. Yeah, too bad it was, you know, too salty to drink because that's yeah. good tea. <laughs> Very disappointed at the loss of the tea. And we never talk about what the British did as a reaction against this, which is they immediately pushed all their baseballs into the <laughs> Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> They took their hot dogs and they said, no. <laughs> no, they, unfortunately, they didn't do that. That would be a really good story. <laughs> they did have a pretty visceral reaction, though. Um, immediately in England, when they heard about what had happened, parliamentarians who had been friends of the colonists were appalled by the Boston Tea Party. They found it so offensive. And it kind of united Parliament against the colonists, where they may have had supporters beforehand. Hmm. Prime Minister Lord North at the time said, whatever may be the consequence, we must risk something or all is over. He said that in reaction to the Boston Tea Party. Hmm. Colonists throwing tea into the water is now, you know, 
it must be dealt with. Yeah. John Adams, in his diary, wrote, Last night, three cargoes of Bohia tea were emptied into the sea. This morning, a man of war sails. This is the most magnificent movement of all. There is a dignity, a majesty, a sublimity in this last effort of the patriots that I greatly admire. The people should never rise without doing something to be remembered, something notable and striking. This destruction of the tea is so bold, so daring, so firm, intrepid, and inflexible, it must have so important consequences and so lasting that I cannot but consider it as an epica in history. End quote. I found it interesting at the time that also immediately after the Boston Tea Party, drinking tea became pretty unfashionable and considered unpatriotic. <laughs> Everybody switched over to coffee, or as I think they may have called it, freedom hot drink. <laughs> freedom water. <laughs> freedom water. <laughs> and I... I think this is interesting because I don't think America ever switched back to tea, honestly. That's more of an English thing, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, that is a really interesting thing because tea is such a, I mean, it's so culturally significant for the United Kingdom in general. And I I, I can't believe that I never considered that this is like... This is what did from. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. we have so much truly in common with the United Kingdom, which makes sense. Yeah. I mean, like, we've got, we obviously share the language, but just like our court system and the way we think about and approach a lot of things and cultural everything, you know, we, we have our, our, um, we, we diverge, obviously, because of a lot of interesting things, which makes America unique. But like, it's, you would be sure that T would have followed us. But yeah, it's cool to think that this is, this is it. I mean, <laughs> Well, yeah. and, and I mean, if you also if you think about the fact that this this all started because uh, England was able to exercise this outsized influence and put its thumb on the scale for where tea gets to where in the world. And so after the war is over and it's like, all right, you guys are on your own. It also makes sense that maybe we would have had a hard time getting the tea because it's like, well, we're not getting it from British India. I can tell you that, mm-hmm. you know, like they were probably yeah. less willing to trade with us or whatever. So it's kind of cool. That, that's a an interesting like where the line breaks what? and where we yeah. yeah definitely a tangible reaction that Britain had against the American colonies at this point was specifically about the Boston Tea Party they passed what were known as the intolerable acts now Tyler tell assuming... me about those how did people did we like them I can't tell by the name what people thought about By them. the name, I think we can infer that they, they didn't like them. Yes. <laughs> they didn't go very well. <laughs> the intolerable acts. That's intolerable acts, yes. The first closed the port of Boston, just entirely. Boston is now closed. The, another one removed the charter of Massachusetts and replaced it with total British governance and also specified that no town meetings would be allowed more than one per year. So they couldn't assemble anymore. The third one, I think this one is interesting because of the name that it got, is the Administration of Justice Act, which got quickly nicknamed the Murder Act. This act allowed British officials to be tried in Britain if they couldn't get a fair trial in Massachusetts. George Washington famously named this the Murder Act. And that's because he said it would allow officials to harass or kill Americans and then totally evade a real trial by escaping to Britain where they didn't even know the circumstances of the crime. Yeah, just say, I, I can't get a fair trial here. Let's do it in England. And then you've got some epic home court advantage if you're a, a an English colonel or whatever and you get sent back to a trial in england where there's presumably the witnesses aren't going to follow you you know <laughs> yeah exactly so those are the intolerable acts again mm. did, clearly did not go over well and you know which are the events that created the american revolution i mean this is top three right I, who can say which one really sparked it but this has got to be really close yeah i think when like we like we've been saying like when you've got people dragging a sheriff out of bed and 
doing this kind of stuff, it's pretty clear that like things were coming to where it's headed, right? To yeah. Head. yeah, like this. And, and that's an interesting thing because I think most people really wanted to avoid a war. And even when the war first started, the whole goal was we want to be treated like Englishmen. Like it wasn't so much, you know, when, when the Sons of Liberty and all these people are like forming, it's like basically stick to your word, England. We love all of the freedoms that you're telling us we should have. So just let us have them. Yeah. Like, we just want to be good English boys and girls. And then, you know, you, you enough economic systems and you shoot enough people in Boston and you go onto all of these, you know, farmers land and say, Oh, all of these trees are being chopped down tomorrow and you have no say in it. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, maybe we don't want to reform this system. Maybe we want to burn the whole thing down. And yeah, in, in hindsight, it's easy to talk about this stuff, but at the time it was like, well, what are they going to do? Start their own country? You know, like it yeah. really was kind of laughable. So as we close out on this series about the American Revolution, and maybe instead of close out, I should say pause out, because I do feel like we could talk about the revolution for a lot longer. There's, yeah. I think, a lot of topics that we haven't even gotten into. But I do want to circle back to some of the questions that we had initially about the American Revolution. Namely, was it justified? Was it justified for America to fight against Britain and vice versa? Was it inevitable? Was there a way around this thing? And, you know, was there anything else that could have been done? Yeah. But I don't know. What do you think as far as, like, how inevitable was this? Was there a way around a war? Well, I mean, I kind of just, um, kind of just alluded to that. And I think that, the, yeah, the most interesting question is, like, what could England have done? Yeah. And the obvious answer you know in in 1790 it, it, armchair quarterbacking this or whatever sport they played back then um would have been like we should have just given them a seat in parliament and i mean i think that there that wasn't there were people um proposing that at the time but if you think about like all of the lives that were lost it was like eight years of england spending all of these resources and stretching itself thin and it had all of these it, then it had all these problems with France and Spain it was supposed to be dealing with, but instead it's, you know, being pestered by this colony. All these people died. And then they lose the huge, you know, ATM that was the American colonies with all that lumber and all that cotton and all that tobacco. And I mean, just from an economic standpoint, that was a huge deal. Like, you know, America now, because of largely because of its natural resources, or if you look at its history, like it had and has a ton of stuff. <laughs> and so again, looking at it, you know, the day after the surrender, it would have been like, man, we should have just treated these guys a little bit better. Um, you know, not as much as they wanted, but we should have kept them just under revolution, you know, temperatures, because then we could have kept, kept it going and England would have, you know, we would have had our toehold over here. And instead they lost the colonies, which were this huge purchase, you know, this huge toehold in the new world and lost everything that went along with it. So yeah, it seems like the the ounce of prevention there would have just been, well, let's let's give them a seat in in parliament, and they can maybe our taxes will go down a little bit, but that certainly would have been cheaper than fighting a very expensive war and then losing a huge amount of area, um, and then having a new a new superpower to compete with. You know, it just seems like such an easy give. You know, concede yeah. a parliamentary seat, and then you totally maintain maintain peace on both sides and maybe that's naive maybe that wouldn't have done it maybe they thought the patriotism they were seeing in the colonies was indicative that the colonies were gonna break away no matter yeah. what didn't matter how many parliamentary states you gave you know yeah, never would have been enough maybe right but it just seems so unwise to think about the boston tea party happens then lord north is like they push the tea into the water. This is not to be born. Like we are full guns ahead at this point. You know, it just yeah. seems ludicrous. Why yeah. didn't you just give them a seat, you know? And I think it feels that way precisely because of like 
this whole new chapter of world history that the American Revolution opened, which is one reason why I think it's so fascinating, because then it was like, oh, you can lose a colony. And yeah. <laughs> like that, that, this was, it really was, you know, this, it gets cliche after a while, but it was like, this was a new dawning of a new day. And it really, truly was. Um, the world was turned upside down, to be sure. Like, it, I think the the answer to some of these questions we're asking is England would have said, no, we don't have to do that. We've had we've had peasants mad at us before and yeah. we've had our little, you know, Irish uprisings before. And what we do is we send the most powerful army in the whole world in and we're going to put it down and this is going to be over in six months. And then, you know, we're going to give all of our generals huge plantations in West Virginia and it's going to be glorious. And instead, the unthinkable happened, which was, uh, no this is actually a pretty real force we're fighting back against and then turns out you know we might not be able to defeat these people and um so yeah it's it seems so crazy now it's like well just just negotiate with them but mm -hmm. any you know aristocrat at that time would have been like negotiate with the king doesn't have to negotiate you know they just probably couldn't have fathomed the consequences you know what was what was coming that would have been insanity as ludicrous as it seems to go attack a whole group of colonies because they got your tea wet it seems maybe just as ludicrous at the time to think that the colonies would ever win an altercation yeah you know they're like okay we're gonna go quell this thing not even thinking that they have a chance of losing well and and again yeah not a chance of losing even if the stakes were, okay, we want to be treated fairly and we want our seat in parliament, let alone you want to go start your own country. <laughs> like, yeah, uh -huh. like, again, think about the last time that happened. When mm -hmm. was the last time before this, standing in 1775, that like somebody said, we're going to go do our own thing. There wasn't room to go do your own thing in European mm -hmm. history. Like every, all the land is taken, guys. And so it's just, it really is kind of a romantic story. Like there's this new world and it just got out of it got out of England's hands you know they put they planted these seeds over here and then they mistreated the whole thing and then before you know it the garden has grown beyond your ability to trim it back and it's you just got to walk away <laughs> and uh so I think in that sense it kind of it was inevitable you asked that question and um I've mentioned before I think the distance you can't underestimate the distance and then um you know, just what being here and experiencing the frontier did to the people. I also don't think you can under underestimate that because, you know, being a textile worker in Nottingham in 1770 was hard, but being a frontiers person over here was just a whole different, you know, we were creating a new type of person and a new culture. And it was, I think it was inevitable that there was going to be a, a split. We had ceased to be english once we sent people to you know this wild world where they were experiencing all these new things it just it wasn't sustainable i think it was very unwise you know we can say that from the, the future but i think it was unwise for britain to think that going across an ocean and fighting on the other side of the world would be an easy win they're not from america they it takes like what two months to get over here <laughs> yeah. you know i that's not necessarily like an easy victory britain has never before then sent over soldiers to fight a war that they won in north america they had not done that before yeah so i think there may have um you know overestimated the the ease of that but at the same time it's like you kind of imagine what would the world have been like if England had maintained peace with the colonies, if they had maintained a union, maybe America does break off at some point but, and declare its own nationhood, but there's still a positive relationship between the two countries. Yeah. I don't know, you know, I, I do think, like you said, the break is inevitable, but was the conflict inevitable? Yeah, that's a good point. If it had been more amicable, I mean, much like England started doing... Um, later on as the as they kind of parceled off the empire you know it, it the, the the united kingdom now has an excellent relationship with 
Australia and New Zealand and mm-hmm. kind of always there wasn't there wasn't a violent, you know They didn't need any more of those. Right? Yeah. <laughs> they were like yeah, we learned our lesson. Yeah. yeah, and so I, I that's a good point. If if they had been able to do it as amicably as as could you know as as much as that is possible yeah maybe they would have had a very strong wealthy ally in the new world that would have helped them do a lot more rather than you know stealing all their resources and then getting them knocked around by france and spain on the other hand you know no footnotes today thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed this mini series on the american revolution If you'd like to follow the show, check out our Instagram and Twitter. You can also email us at raceandtylertalkwikipedia at gmail.com. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.